If you've been around for a while here at Wellsprings, you know that I am a, a fan of the New York Giants and a fan of the New York Yankees. <laughs> we didn't get one cheer at the, uh, at the 930. You got one cheer in the back this time. Um, some of you are still working on forgiving me for that fact, clearly. Uh, fortunately, you're in the right place for that. So uh, you're going to have to forgive me a little bit more because this past week I just counted up the amount of championships that those two teams have won since I've been alive. Trust me, this is getting somewhere. Or maybe I just like to speak it out loud. Your decision. Four Super Bowls, seven World Series. It's not been bad being me as a fan in the last few decades. It's not been a bad thing at all. However, I think that one of the best things truly about being a fan is, is sometimes the wonderful anguish of defeat. I mean, sometimes we can live with those defeats more than we live with those victories as fans. And so today I out myself as my other great sports love, the New York Knicks. That has provided me very little joy for the entire time that I have been a fan. Indeed, the last championship that they won was 1973 when I wasn't even conscious yet. And they were really only a good team in about the early to mid, a little bit of the late 90s. And they didn't win the championship, and they were kind of an ugly team to watch. They played a really uh, defensive-minded form of basketball in which they fouled a lot. And it just it wasn't pleasurable, and when they lost, they lost in kind of excruciating ways. So it's, it's, it's being a Knicks fan that has acquainted me with perhaps what some of you who are Philadelphia fans <laughs> may be aware of when it comes to constant, unending, soul-crushing frustration. The Knicks appeared to be headed for another unsuccessful, unhappy, miserable kind of season this year until, until this guy showed up. Jeremy Lin, bringing the indescribably great play he did. The Lin sanity, the Lin inspiration, the Linderella story. I made none of these up, but you can hear them over and over and over again. Jeremy Lin, unheralded, undrafted out of that basketball mecca known as Harvard University, cut by two other teams, two other pro teams sitting at the very end of the Knicks bench, buried there, about to himself be cut, but for the many injuries the Knicks had sustained in the last few weeks. And so he finally got a chance, and he led the Knicks improbably to seven straight victories, suffering just his first loss in a very close game this past Friday night. He has had absolutely scintillating play with a flair for the dramatic and has re-energized not just the Knicks, but indeed so much of what constitutes fandom for the NBA. All the while, he has bumped up against and helped to transcend and also unearth some really odious stereotypes we have about who plays what kinds of sports. Some of the uglier aspects since Jeremy Lin has become a sensation have been about some of the prejudices and racism that the society still holds against people of Asian descent. Fortunately, those voices have been relatively minimal 
And the hullabaloo around Jeremy Lin has been celebratory. I mean, now to get the courtside seats in Madison Square Garden, the mecca of basketball, could pay thousands of dollars, $5,000, $10,000, whereas three weeks ago, they were giving those away, still very expensively, but at cut discount rates compared to what they are now. All the A-listers want to show up when before, a few weeks ago, you probably had to beg the cast of Jersey Shore to show up for a Knicks game. I mean, people who have to be in front of a camera to realize that they even exist, those kind of people. That's not true anymore. People want to show up now. It was a little different from how Jeremy Lin experienced the days when he was a star point guard at Harvard. He was asked this past week, well, how do you compare the celebrities that are now showing up at Knicks games to the celebrities who showed up when you were at Harvard? And he thought for a second, it gets funnier. Who was the biggest celebrity who showed up when you were playing a a Harvard game? And he thought for a second. He said, well, that would have to be Arnie Duncan. Very few of you know who Arnie Duncan is, and that's laughable. Arnie Duncan is the U.S. Secretary of Education. And for a Harvard basketball game, that counts as a celebrity. Now, Arnie Duncan was, 20, 30 years ago, a pretty good basketball player starring on the Harvard squad. And indeed, working in President Obama's cabinet is one of the trusted advisors that President Obama, who who balls really good himself, from what I am told, that he trusts to play basketball with him. Now, Arnie Duncan was asked this past week, what advice would you give to Jeremy Lin in the midst of all this Linsanity? What advice would you offer him now that he is finding all this success? And this is what Secretary Duncan said. He said, now that you're getting all this notice, now that you're getting all these wins, don't change. No new friends. The friends who were with you when you got cut by Golden State, the friends who were with you when you got cut by Houston, these are the friends you now continue to need. There is so much coming at you. Everyone now wants to be your best friend. You don't need any more best friends. It's going to get harder not easier for you. So just keep playing. Just keep putting in the time and the practice. You've got a great family, a great support structure. You've got great friends. Stay with them and leave it at that. Arnie Duncan is very wise. What he knows, even without saying it, is that we as human beings, we always have been, and especially now, We're social creatures who are drawn to other folks' success, and we are social creatures who tend to retreat from other folks' perceived failures. We are a culture that is winning-obsessed. We are a culture that is losing-averse. I mean, just pretend you don't know any of the names and close your eyes and... I will bet you that you really can't tell the difference between an all-sports station and an all-news station and an all-financial channel. It's always so often who's up, who's down in the moment, who's winning, who's losing. Who do we want to get close to? Who are we repelled by? Last week when I started this message series on spiritual friendship, I talked about the fact 
that by subjective and objective standards, Americans are lonelier than we have ever been when it has been measured in the past as well. The measurements or one of the key measurements of that index of our loneliness or our connection is how many people we trust. I'm not just talking about acquaintances. I'm not just talking about work friends, but the amount of people that we trust that we can really go to with a deep hope or a deep hurt, something that really resides in our heart. By that index, Americans are as lonely as we have ever been. And I believe there is not just uh, incidental but a causal connection between these two things, between a society that is growing lonelier and a society that is growing ever more competitive. A hyper-competitive society has less room for friendship, less room for things that do not immediately signify to others, I'm up, I'm down, I'm a winner, I'm a loser. I think one of the reasons for this is that because... We focus so much on merit and on what we earn and on who is worth what and who matters in our society. I think it's the most important conversation we've got going on in our society right now. And it's a painful conversation because we recognize a lot of people are very far apart on that conversation. But all these conversations about earning and merit and worth cannot really get to the hearts of the value that friendship brings to our lives it's because friendship deep true abiding friendships are fundamentally not about worth or merit they are about an expression of grace receiving the gift of another person's presence offering the gift of our presence to another person grace by definition cannot be measured it can only be shared and acknowledged and cultivated Why I believe Arne Duncan was so on target with his guidance for Jeremy Lin is this. That at times I know in my life when I have been at my most successful and I have felt like, hey, I'm riding high and I'm feeling like king of the world right now. It's my true friends who will both celebrate with me and do something else. They will find really key, loving, necessary, subtle ways to say you are not all that. (laughs) This image, this projection of success. This is not the true you. So watch it, Buster. Remember who you are. This false flattery of the successful. This clinging to images of success. It is not real friendship. And on the other side, of course, when others may want to flee from us, Because we are failing, because we are in pain, because we may not have all our best stuff together. It is our true friends that, like, they put a cushion below us and allow us to fall down softly and believe, not just with our minds, but to open our hearts to the reality that we are more than the image of ourselves as a person who is failing. We are allowed to cushion the blow and have a soft landing at the hard bottoms that sometimes our lives can reach. Friendship is perhaps so deeply wonderful because friendship, the kind of friendship where we get past the false face or the ego or the image, friendship saves people from believing they are disposable, from believing they 
are worthless because they may be failing or in pain. My friends have helped me recognize over and over again in my life that there is a huge huge chasm, huge gap between losing and being a loser. Between experiencing what it is to fail, which I have done many times, and being a failure. One is a total state of being that if we internalize, we find it is so difficult to get back up out into life once again. Martin Seligman, who teaches at UPenn and talks about the experiences of what helps people thrive in life, studies human happiness and human flourishing, talks about this experience of deep, sustained relationships in our lives as the experience of what it is to sit in real spiritual furniture. Literally, think of your friends as allowing you to sit back into life comfortably, perhaps when even you are in pain. What Martin Seligman, who has studied this for decades, says is that right now in America... Many of us are living with the most threadbare spiritual furniture that other folks have ever had. We're a hyper-competitive, hyper-comparative society. Who's better? Who's worse? Who's up? Who's down? Who's winning? Who's losing? I mean, I saw a study about this just the other day, and it really wormed its way into my heart because I spent a lot of time on Facebook. Those of you who are my Facebook friends know. I like to like a lot of your statuses because I think if you put something up, it should be, it should be recognized. Now, at the same time, what this study said is that so much of what we present, and I include myself in this, on Facebook is just an image of our lives and very often an image of our success. And I know sometimes I read other folks' status and they say, damn, I'm not doing nearly enough. I'm not achieving nearly enough. I'm not succeeding nearly enough. And then I start to feel kind of lousy about myself. Or even sometimes I say this. I put something up. It gets a lot of likes. It, re- it, re- it represents something I enjoy about myself. And I start to feel that ego inflation. Well, that's not just me with Facebook. And it is an expression of how comparative and competitive our society is right now. Another social teacher and thinker whose work I really esteem at this moment is a woman named Brene Brown. And I know some of you know her, and I've talked about her before in my messages. She is a professor of social work at the University of Houston, and she's done a couple of those TED Talks, if you know those that circulate all around the Internet. And I really encourage you, if you haven't seen one of hers, please spend about 15, 20 minutes taking a look. She studies courage and vulnerability and resilience, and shame. Shame, which is nearly a universal human experience of a profound sense of our inadequacy. Now, she said the ability to feel shame can be profoundly meaningful for us if it leads us back into greater empathy and compassion for ourselves and other people. But the problem, she says, is that when shame is experienced in isolation... Absent profound connections and communities, we can believe shame goes all the way down, that we are at the core of our being imperfect, unlovable, unrecognizable, and inadequate. And so some of the books that she's written have wonderful titles like Simple, simple One, uh, she calls it Connections. And she says it's a shame resiliency curriculum. I love that because it's all about the connections. 
And another title, which has the subtitle, I'm going to read to you first, said uh, Thoughts on Power, Vulnerability, and Imperfection, Imperfection, I think the subtitle is. And this one says, I thought it was just me, and then in parentheses, but it isn't. That's what it is to have real friends, the kind of people who remind us when we get lost in our own terminal uniqueness, when we get lost in our own sorrows or sufferings, or get lost in our own ego of how successful we are. Our friends remind us to be connected. Our friends remind us that our lives are so much more than the image of just what we convey or portray. This, I think, is the deepest aspect of spiritual friendship, to talk about what spiritual friendship really is. Are those people that we can share the unformed, perhaps uncomfortable parts of ourselves with and trust them? I would even take it a little deeper than that and say and ask you to think about, when I take a sip of water, to whom can you show and share your shame. Those moments, those times, and perhaps one of those times is right now. When that creeping sense of inadequacy starts to threaten to become pervasive. And you wonder, perhaps, maybe I don't just have problems. Maybe I am the problem. To whom can we show our shame? To whom do we open up in that place and space of grace to allow others in? I think this is the the theological reality of the most famous spiritual song that there is, Amazing Grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost and now I'm found but blind, was blind but now I see. I mean, there's many different ways to experience grace, but I believe and I know from my own experience that the most manifest regular form of amazing grace that I receive and also that I give is found in the personification, the real, live, embodied experience of friends that I can trust. The place where we can go beyond ego and go beyond mask and go beyond false face and find profound connection. It is perhaps the greatest blessing of spiritual friendship to be reminded of what the great Albert Schweitzer said that sometimes, yes, our own light does go out and is rekindled, rekindled by a spark from another person. I've been thinking about that quote a lot this past week. See, three years ago, I told some of you a story, a story of a, what appeared to be or started out as a, excuse me, typical Friday night. My wife and I were at the North Star in the Fairmount District, if you know that. We were about to see a show there. Eli Paperboy Reed and the True Loves, awesome, so much fun, uh, new see a, sort of neo-soul, neo-R&B. And Teresa wandered off for a second, and, you know, because as mindful as I try to be, I really do hate open moments. I took out, you know, my, uh, my little friend here and started playing with it and started checking my, you know, Facebook messages. And I saw that the, the main line item said that it was a message from a friend who wasn't at that point even a Facebook friend of mine, but a true friend who I had not spoken with in decades, 
friend of mine from high school, from the Hill School, way back. You know, I graduated in 1988. Saw him just a few times in college and had lost almost entire, almost entire lost touch with him. I read this long, unfurling message that he had sent me, detailing his pain, his shame, his anger, his sense of disconnection. And by the third paragraph, what I recognized what I was reading was his suicide note that he had sent to me and only to me. We did not stay for the show. We left. I messaged him right back. Let me please get in touch with you. I want to talk to you. He sent me a message back almost immediately saying, no, I've made up this mind. I made this decision. I just wanted you to know because I care about you, but don't try and change my mind. My wife, using all of her journalistic skills, contacted this person, contacted that person, contacted this person. We found somehow that I had a friend on Facebook who was a friend of his. We found out where he was. And about two and a half later, hours later, when I was back home, I finally had his number in hand and was able to call him. And I've had a bunch of these kind of conversations in my life and in my ministry. And the first thing I always do before I enter one of these delicate, difficult spaces is I utter some words to myself from the Psalms. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you. Because that's a difficult space to enter. And what came pouring out of my friend's mouth was a litany of sadness and guilt and shame and, because he had been drinking and a lot, drunken self-loathing. A story of years of acute depression and isolation. And he was just so tired. Tired of fighting. And I just listened to him and I told him that I was sorry we hadn't been in touch until now. And I told him that I loved him. And I told him that I would be sad if he left this life. And as I experienced my life, I was just better off knowing that he was still living. But mostly what I did was just listen. Listen, as he kept extolling me, that was the reason he reached out to me. He Googled me and he saw all the quote unquote great things I had been doing with my life. And every time he extolled me, you know what he did in the next breath? He put himself down. And after listening to this, as the hour long conversation became a two hour conversation and a three hour conversation, finally I said to him, I said, you know, the light that you perceive in me that is so real, I must tell you it is still a part of you because you can only perceive something that you already have or else you wouldn't be able to gauge it in me. And for the first time, the kind of mania that he had been in throughout this conversation paused. And I always remember these words. He said, that's reasonable. That's reasonable. And so eventually the cops that we had called some hours before came by to check on him and he sobered up a little bit and he promised me that he would not end his life that night. We had a number of follow-up conversations in the months to come and I connected some other friends of ours from boarding school back to him. Tried to coax him if I could into recovery. And after a while, the connections with him faded out a little bit. And so I really wish today, I really wish that I could tell you 
happily ever after is the ending to this story. But it's not. Last year, last summer, I got a message from a classmate of ours that told me that my friend Chris, that's his name, had died. No last-minute reach-out suicide note this time. Just the news that he was gone. Looking back into our yearbook, I found an address for him, and I googled that address, and I found a name and an email address for his father, who I knew was one of the few people that Chris had maintained some connection with. And I told him how sorry I was and how heartbroken I was and how I knew how much he loved his dad. His father got right back to me and said, around that time that you talk about when he reached out to you, I went down to see him and it broke my heart and I really tried to get him help. I tried to get him to come home, even though he wouldn't. And then he thanked me for being his son's friend. And he said, I'm not sure if he killed himself, the amount of drugs and alcohol that he was taking, it may have been intentional, it may have been unintentional. And then he said something that made me so sad to this day. He asked me not to keep in touch with him because it was just too hard for him to stay connected to his son's memory. I thought a lot about my friend Chris over the last six months. Part of me wonders, why him and not me? Both of us couldn't stand our very traditional, arch-conservative, all-boys boarding school we went to. But yet we found friends there anyway and thrived academically and managed to hold it all together even though we partied far more than our, certainly, dorm master ever knew about. Thought, why him and not me? Because as we moved into our 20s, what I came to know about him is that He, like me, had a first failed and unhappy marriage. He, like me, had acute and very painful depression. He, like me, became dependent and abusive of alcohol. As I sit with these unanswerable questions, there is only one halfway decent answer I come up with, which is that even in the midst of my worst moments, I never quit reaching out. And at some point, Chris, because of his pain, he stopped reaching out. I do not blame him for this. To condemn a person who lives with such unalterable and daily pain of loathing the very core of themselves to condemn such a person is to commit moral and spiritual sadism. I do not condemn him, but I miss him. And yes, I also naturally wonder, what more could I have done? I mean, I offered to go down there several times. I offered to take him to recovery groups. I offered to maybe help him move back home. And he kept saying no, and I wonder, should I have just insisted? Should I have just said, absolutely, I'm doing this? 
when those thoughts come, I try to let them go, but actually even letting them go isn't right because letting go is like a form of pushing away, and that doesn't help. I simply try to let these thoughts be and sit with how uncomfortable they make me because they open me back up to the heartbreak and the pain of losing a friend. And as I sit with them, I recognize that the question that is begged at the bottom of that, why couldn't I have done more? Why shouldn't I have done more? Why couldn't I save my friend's life? The answer that truly comes to me is something I'm going to show you in just a moment. I'm not something I'm going to show you in just a moment. I'm not and you're not. And I've been blessed to be invited into a lot of those moments by some of you in this room. Some of those moments when there are real decisions. Do we live? Do we not live? Some of those vulnerable moments we have. I need to remember myself that I and none of us are this. I am not Superman. Duh. Oh, but I want to think I am. I want to think that I have powers to make suffering stop. I want to think that I can always find the right words to make the sadness end. And then I also remember that Superman wasn't a comic, wasn't a cartoon. It was Friedrich Nietzsche's idea, the Ubermensch, of someone who was so powerful that they transcended all human care and all human values and all human worries. And so in those moments that I think, if I was Superman, I could have invented the wonder drug that would have cured Chris. I could have compelled him to have gotten well. I could have forced him. I would have found exactly the right words. I would have given him something that he could not find on his own. If I was Superman, I could have done all that. But there's one thing I could not have done if I was Superman, and none of us can do when we believe we're superheroes. I could not have been Chris's friend, which means I never would have known in the first place when he was about to end his life three years ago. Superman and superheroes, they have no friends because they have no peers and they have no equals. But to be a spiritual friend, we have to look our friends, eye to eye, heart to heart, hand to hand, on the basis of that equality and on the basis of that vulnerability is the only good that we can do as friends. The saving grace of friendships does not come in leaping tall buildings at a single bound. It comes by learning to walk step by step, side by side, through sometimes the darkest valleys of this life with the people that we care about. That's why I love that wisdom that Secretary Duncan filled and offered to Jeremy Lin. Because at some point, Jeremy Lin will fail. 
At some point, Jeremy Lin will not make the last second basket. At some point, Jeremy Lin will not be the toast of the town anymore. At some point, Jeremy Lin will fail. And the people who are only attached to Jeremy Lin on the basis of the image of his value will retreat from him. And if Jeremy Lin has come to recognize his value in the eyes of those who believe the self-image of the person who wins all the time, that Jeremy Lin will become bereft in the same way that any of us would become bereft if we believe only the image of ourselves and do not go deeper into that place that is not earned. So many names it has, but the experience I know most of it by is the experience of grace. Simply that we have value because we are alive. It cannot be earned. It can be only cultivated and shared and offered back to life as the gift that it is. We are all of us more than the image of winner or loser, victim or victor. In that sacred space of our real lives, our friends can walk with us. We follow these words, the wonderful spiritual teacher Ram Das, who talks not about flying or leaping into each other's lives. He says beautifully and simply, we're all just walking each other home. We are all just walking each other home. May you take the hands today that you need to walk you home. May you reach out for the hands that reach out for you who need you to walk them home. As we can walk this walk, we are truly saving lives and saving our own as well. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. To the many names and the deep ultimate reality of grace. to that wonderful, soulful power within us that knows, connect, connect, connect. The capacity of spirit that allows us to see beyond the image of ourselves as victim or victor and allows us to see that in others as well, allows us to mourn and to grieve for those we loved and lost and could not save. May we turn this day in the hopes and in the reality of that saving capacity of friendship. Turn towards our friends, reach out for help, reach out to offer ourselves, and to walk each other home. Amen.
please rise, whether in body or in spirit. And if you know this song, please sing along. Saw you stretched out in room 1009 With a smile on your face And a tear right in your eye Oh, couldn't see to get a line on you My sweet honey love Love a jewelry jangling down the street, making bloodshot eyes at every woman that you meet. Could not seem to get a high on you, my sweet honey love. May the good Lord. Shine a light on you Make every song you sing Your favorite tune May the good Lord Shine a light on you Warm Like the evening sun When you're drunk In the alley, baby, with your Clothes all torn, and your late night friends need you in the cold gray dawn. Just seem too many flies on you. I just can't rush and rush them extinguish this light, but certainly not our own. And together we say, as we release this flame from its faithful service today, we allow the spark in each of us to burn on 
to warm our compassion, to fire our delight, to light our paths today, tomorrow, and always. And may each and every one of us be in peace and go in peace this day and share our peace with those who need it and receive the peace back from them that they have to give us. May it be so.